At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello and welcome everyone to Best in Show, episode 33. Best in Show is the only podcast dedicated to the show rabbit and KV industry. I am joined each and every week by the clever and creative Bryony Smith of Winterfell, also known as Wichita, Kansas. How are you doing, Bryony? Well, um, I'm waiting for another fall of winter, I guess. We're getting it here in just a matter of hours. Um, and we have actually had some real wind the past couple of days. Uh, I know about that wind, and I have, I, <laughs> I'm laughing because yesterday when I was driving back from New Mexico, I sent you a little video of tumbleweed like going across the road, and I was like, oh, my God, it's so windy here. And I'm like, Ellen, why did you send that to Brian? And she's from Kansas. There's tumbleweed everywhere, and the wind is always blowing. So <laughs> I kind of embarrassed myself. I'm like, wow, look at this tumbleweed. Um, no, you're kind of used to that. Well, eastern Kansas doesn't have tumbleweeds, but um, our, our listeners might remember that I was planning to be out of state when you were going to be here this past weekend, mm -hmm. and things worked out so that that show was kind of down in numbers. I was released from that, which was fine. So we got to hang out, and it cracked me up. Both you and Doug King said, oh, my gosh, it's so windy when you got off the plane. And I'm like, <laughs> honestly, I hadn't even thought about that because this is just kind of like a breeze today. <laughs> Just a light breeze. Yeah, no, it was like hurricane strength wind uh, to a couple not. of Californians. And it was also like negative 20. It was really like 50, but it, it was, I was bitterly cold and so thankful that showroom was inside and heated. And well, the best part was that you were there because, you know, we had a conversation two episodes ago where you were kind of like, Alan, you're going to be in Kansas and you didn't tell me and I'm out of state. So it ended up working out. You didn't go out of state and we spent the weekend together and it was a total blast. Yes, it was. Um, it, it was a good time. I, I like playing host, but but no, it was like 50 degrees with maybe, maybe 20 mile an hour gusts. Maybe. <sighs> Tell that is... to a Californian. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, and I also heard that after we left, because we actually, it was relatively good weather for that show. Um, I was supposed to judge uh, for the Rocky, uh, Smoky Hills, not Rocky Hills, Smoky Hills Rabbit Club there in the Wichita area. I was supposed to judge their show last year uh, in 2021, but it was canceled due to actual real cold <laughs> and weather, um, way worse than I could normally complain about. And so it's good to be back there. It was a big show and it was, uh, it was a fun day. I love being back in Kansas and even more so when I get to spend the, the day with, or really day and a half with you. Yeah, I got to drive you around the uh, dream hometown. You could see my old rabbit barn. And so it was kind of fun. It was nostalgic. 
I did. You know, remember last week we said I was going to like lay a dandelion if there was one <laughs> in your honor. I didn't have to. You actually took me to the barn where it all started there at the fairgrounds in El Dorado and showed me the barn and uh, where that, all that magic happened so many years ago. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then I got to judge rabbits like five feet away. So, and then I found you some of the best IPAs in Wichita. That was that was great. It was a great end to a long day. <laughs> and uh, yeah, both Doug and, and, and you and and Nathan, we enjoyed a, a very fun night. And, and the pasta was good too. I never asked you how your Cajun pasta was. I, I meant to, I was, I was talking everyone's ear off, I'm sure. So I just forgot about your food. Was it good? It was good. Oh, and you and Doug were on a roll. I swear, like it, he could take over my spot on the podcast. You guys are hysterical. <laughs> Maybe we think the IPAs for that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Normally after a show like that, I'm out of words, but we had, gosh, we were there until like what, 11 o'clock, just, just chatting up in the, in the, in that brewery. In, in Wichita, yeah, it was Wichita, and that's what it's all about. That's that's the best part of the hobby, hands down, is just spending time together. And Nathan came out; <laughs> you, you guys gave him a wouldn't be the first time, but gave him a nice hard time during the how we met story. <laughs> oh yes, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Nathan, he's a great guy. It was uh, yes, fun to is. finally meet him. I had never I had never met him, and uh, he's yeah, he even stopped at the rabbit show. He made an appearance. He did. He was there at the rabbit show. I was actually acting as co-leader of our uh, Hair Raisers Rabbit Club that incorporates Sedgwick, Butler County, and a Kingman County family, too. So he helped me with the scavenger hunt activity that we did with the kids over lunch. And that was a blast. They had a really good time. A lot of them are beginners, so they got to just go around the showroom and learn a few things about the basics of rabbits, and most importantly, talk to people, start having some conversations with breeders. At least two of them went home with new rabbits that day. So that was really exciting. Very successful. Yeah. And I saw a lot of kids running around with those scavenger hunts that you put together. That's, that's a really good idea for um, rabbit shows to kind of incorporate. It's, it gets the kids involved and you know, rabbit shows are, are a long day for kids, especially when you only have maybe two opportunities to show. So there's a lot of lag time. It's usually when the kids start, you know, being bad out in the parking lot or on the, on the bleachers, uh, but giving them that scavenger hunt gives them something to do. And meanwhile, they're learning some great things and maybe even inspired to grab some new rabbits for themselves on the way home. Yeah, we hope so. Um, and afterwards, several of us who are 4-H leaders here in Kansas talked about, you know, maybe we should kind of team up and make sure that there's some sort of educational activity, you know, at all the ARBA shows. And it doesn't have to be really anything like this one that takes any time from the show committee. But I remember when I was a kid at several of the shows, there would be even like clinic sessions over lunch with a judge or something like that. And just, you know, the contests are great for kids, but we also have to remember that we need to encourage some of them to participate in that we need you know we need to provide some non-competitive learning activities so they feel confident enough to try that because not every kid is like me <laughs> it's just like oh here's a contest well let me go see if i can crush that <laughs> yeah. um I i've learned that over the years but but yeah they seem to have fun and you know they came up and i just took a look at their sheet make sure they completed it um asked them if they had fun they got a candy bar for doing it and then um, Nathan went over, he always likes to donate to the show. So he bought some raffle tickets and we gave a few of those to the ones that finished first. And he's like, are those a good prize? I'm like, oh, just wait a few minutes. There's nothing better for a kid than raffle tickets at a show. <laughs> nothing, nothing worse than for the mom or dad to realize that the kid has put all of them in a very ugly hall and lop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I said, the only problem we're going to have is if somebody gets something live and I have a mad <laughs> You're taking it home. <laughs> yeah. 
So fun. All right, folks. So for this episode, we are going to dive back into 2019, um, both some history side in rabbits and in the world. Do you want to take us back to 2019, which wasn't that long ago? We're going to confess. Uh, you want to take us back there for some world events that were going on in 2019? Well, 2019 is one of those times that um, it seems like a long time ago, but it really wasn't. Um, and I guess uh, I'm going to try really hard here to, uh, you know, not make us feel bad about the before times. <laughs> 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 so there were some interesting things that happened in January. The New Horizons made a close approach to the, I can't say this, Kuiper Belt object. Um, which is really cool. We like space in here. Um, you like space in here. <laughs> I like space in here. Hey, and I will throw in a pitch to anyone that goes to any of the national shows at Hutchinson, Kansas. If you have even a passing interest in space, go to the Kansas Cosmosphere. It's really cool. I'm a whole adult and I still like to go there for my birthday. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> in February, Pope Francis became the first pope to visit the Arabian Peninsula. In March, an unmanned demonstration flight of SpaceX was carried out. More space. We always like that on the <laughs> program. I don't know. Rabbit no space comment. and royalty. I don't know. Um, in April, there was an event that kind of had the whole world watching when a fire started in the Notre Dame of Paris that destroyed the spire and some of the roof. Um, I know a lot of people were kind of watching with a lot of sadness as that's been a, an icon of, you know, art and culture for many, many years in the world. Oh, it was awful. I remember watching it just going, is this really happening? I mean, I've, I've, I've been there a couple of times. I was there in high school in Notre Dame and I was there during, uh, it was, uh, it was a school vacation for our vacation, a trip for a week. And it was the, it was Good Friday. So once a year in Notre Dame, they, they take out the crown of thorns and you can only see it on Good Friday. And we happened to be there on Good Friday. And I was like, oh my God, I hope the, I hope the crown didn't burn. I, I'm sure it did not, but it was, it was awful to watch from afar because it's such a historic, as you said, um, monument, a world monument. Oh yeah. I mean, it was just, just this horrible, helpless feeling, you know, we're used to seeing this, I don't know, I guess happened to modern buildings, but you think something like that, it just seems untouchable, you know? Indestructible. Yeah. It's been there for so long. How could it, how could it not be anymore? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in July, Boris Johnson became prime minister of the United Kingdom. I know that there were definitely some um, comparisons between him and Donald Trump, both in governance style and hairstyle. <laughs> and they both got COVID. <laughs> yeah, and they both got COVID. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, in October, there were Hong Kong protests, um, a little bit of unrest in that part of the world. And this was really kind of when we started hearing about coronavirus. And yeah, it was that fall. It kind of start, started to come on the news that this was going on in China. And I think, you know, for a while, people were kind of cracking jokes about it. Cough, cough. haha, I have coronavirus. Her, her, whatever. That's not going to happen here. And then there we were. Yep. So um, anyway, <laughs> you're kind of a... Ended on a not really a sour note, but um, things change a lot after that. And like I said, it's I think it's kind of difficult to not fondly remember that as the before times. But I think by now we're starting to see some more signs of normalcy coming back. Yeah, we sure are. 
All right, I'm going to take us back to 2019 on the rabbit side, and it's going to be more positive. <laughs> so this time in 2019, I'm going to dedicate a big portion of this to recapping the convention before coronavirus, and that was in Reno, Nevada. That was the 96th ARBA convention, and it was actually the very first time that the ARBA has been to Nevada, the state of Nevada, that is, um, with uh, an ARBA convention. But a reminder, we're going to be back there this year in 2022 for the big Family reunion, Rabbits and Cabies, our convention will be in October again in Reno. But back to 2019, the theme was Go West, Young Buck. And that was in celebration of early pioneers who took chances and chased dreams in the American West and um, in our fancy and in our industry who doesn't take chances and, and chase those dreams for the elusive best in show. And the convention was dedicated to uh, a very good friend of both of ours and a mentor of mine, Dr. Scott Williamson from California. And the results, the overall best in shows, they were they were they were fun and they were interesting in some regards. And one of those uh, winners is actually going to be the guest today on the podcast, and that was Linda Hebert from Colorado. She won best in show with Lap Lop's Dancer. It was a broken American Fuzzy Lop senior doe, and it was the very first time that an American Fuzzy Lop won best in show in open at the ARBA convention in 2017. A Fuzzy Lop won youth best in show that was in Indianapolis, and the winner was Lena McGee. On the ARBA youth side for the convention winner, that went to a Jersey Woolly owned by Cody Landis with a black senior buck. And that was the first time a Jersey Woolly, regardless of whether it was open or youth, took best in show at the ARBA convention. On the KV side, open KV winner was from California, Jackie Shaw with a white American sow. And youth also was a white American owned by Trinity Seraphin of Oregon. We talked in episode 31 about the rarity of open and youth ARBA convention winners being of the same breed during the same convention. As we re recap, uh, in 2021, a French Angora won both open and youth best in show. And over time, it's happened five times for rabbits where both youth and open were the same breed during that same convention. So I thought, okay, we're going to take a look at KV this time because in 2019, in fact, a, a white American won both open and youth. So since 1977, that's when we started doing best in shows for KVs at convention. How many times, Brian, I'm going to quiz you, do you think a KV has won best in show in open youth and it was the same breed that year? Hmm. I'm going to say, and this is just off the top of my head, six times. There are fewer breeds of KVs. Very close. Eight times. And I had a feeling when I dove into the went into this, I was like, I bet it's happened a lot. And I bet it's been, you know, one breed. <laughs> it's like the New Zealand white of KBs, which I consider the American, right? Um, so it's happened eight times and it's been with four breeds. And now that I gave you my guess, what would your guess be when it came to the breed that's taken it the most times consecutively? I would say Peruvian. <laughs> you should have went with my gut. It was, no. <laughs> it was the American, okay? American has won three times as open and youth in the same same year. Peruvian was second. They've won it twice. But Silky's also tied for, for twice. And then Teddy took it once uh, in the same year. So we'll just recap. In 2019, an American won both open and youth. Winner in open was Jackie Shaw, youth Trinity Seraphin. Prior to that, in 2015, a Peruvian won open and youth. Carol Anaya took open. Caitlin Plank took youth. In 2012, a Silky won open, owned by Phyllis Ripley, and a Silky won in youth, owned by Megan Rudder. In 2004, a Silky again took open, owned by Mike and Brenda Keegan, and a youth, a Silky won by Renee Provost. 1987, an American, 
Barb Butler of Ohio took Best in Show and Open, and Aaron, I think it's Mateja, won in Youth. The year prior to that, 1996, a Peruvian won. Robert Spitzer of Arizona took Open and Wendy Miller in Youth. 1986, so it took 10 years before this happened again, a Teddy won in Open, owned by Nancy Davis, and a Teddy won in Youth, owned by Jason Wellman. And the very first time it happened was in 1978 with an American, Lewis and Marge Park and Lisa Meyer in youth. They both won with Americans. So pretty cool stuff, right? Yeah, it is. And honestly, I thought it was going to happen a lot more. I, in fact, Yeah, I did I, too. I, when I gave the stats uh, in episode 31, I thought, okay, I'm going to not do KVs because I bet it's really long. I bet an American has won it like 15 times. <laughs> no, it, it really wasn't. It was only, it was only uh, what did I say, three times that an American has done it. Um, in overall, in all though, eight times for the... Uh, Best in show, open and youth being the same breed at an ARB convention. All right. And to finish up the uh, what happened in rabbits in 2019, kind of a cool thing happened. Uh, in April of 2019, a documentary team released Remarkable Rabbits. It's a film in the Nature of Things series by Canadian film producers. The documentary was largely filmed actually at the 2018 ARBA convention, but wasn't released until 2019. And it highlighted the ARBA and show rabbit industry. And it was narrated by David Suzuki and directed by Susan Fleming. And if you guys haven't seen it, it's online. You can find it. And there's even a, a cool promo on YouTube for the documentary. It's about five minutes, um, but it has a lot of familiar faces. And if you can find the full length, it's about an hour. It's very interesting. And it dives mostly into show rabbits, but also into, um, you know, the wild side of things too, which we're going to talk about later in this episode. So now that we've recapped history, Bryony, do you have any listener comments this week to read? We did. We got a comment on our um, Apple link, I think, and it said, excellent was the title. It said, the voice of the fancy. Congrats to Alan and Bryony. And this is from a user named Rabbits2002. So we are um, humbled and honored by that. <laughs> we sure are. And we want to thank everyone who drops those comments, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, Google, or Audible. We really appreciate your five-star ratings, your follows, and your shares. Don't forget to like and follow The Rabbitry on Facebook and continue to share our posts so that we get the great word out about the Best in Show podcast. Facebook still remains as uh, kind of the glue that, that binds most of us together around the world when it comes to rabbits and cabies. So our hub is The Rabbitry on Facebook. Like and follow it and share posts from it. Uh, episodes from previous times, current, and lots more to come will be continued to be posted on The Rabbitry page. And again, your five-star ratings and your comments mean the world to us. Each week, we love to read one or two or three and share those with our listeners like you. Alan, I can't think of anything more peaceful than sitting down after all the chores are done and all the rabbits are fed and just watching them hop around their cages, eat, enjoy their lives, and thrive. Yes, Bryony, that's a rabbit keeper's sign of peace and tranquility. Clean rows of cages full of happy rabbits. Of course, having well-designed cages makes a huge difference too. I don't think there's a rabbit raiser alive that doesn't yearn to a happy rabbitry full of KW Advanced designed cages, feeders, and nest boxes. The blue nameplate with a KW Bunny logo is how I always can tell those that take their animals very seriously. These are the highest quality you can get. They've been around since I was a kid. Well, for 45 years, that is. KW Cages has always led the most innovative designs and highest quality hand craftsmanship. Right now, if you order from kwcages.com and use the promotion code THERABITRY, you can receive $10 off your order of over $75. So check out kwcages.com 
and insert the promo code THERABBITRY for some savings. Today, our guest is Linda Hibbert of Colorado. As most of you know, Linda most recently won Best in Show at the 2019 ARBA convention in Reno, Nevada with an American Fuzzy Lop. Linda, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So to start off, can you tell us how you got started in rabbits and who were some of your early mentors in the hobby? Well, I sort of got started kicking and screaming no when my granddaughter wanted to wanted some rabbits, some pet rabbits. And we had enough animals at our farm and I didn't really think we needed to add rabbits, but she prevailed and started with a couple of Hollands and then a couple of fuzzy lops and it progressed from there. So that was where that was the very beginning. Um, shortly thereafter, we went to a rabbit show or two. We found that the pet Hollands that she had were really pretty pet and that they weren't going to compete. And both of us are competitive. So we decided to investigate the breed a little deeper found mentors in Bill and Laureen Wark of Woodland Rabbitry. They had lovely Hollands. Um, after a couple of sessions with them, we convinced them that we were serious and that we were intelligent enough to follow through with breeding and learning about the whole hobby. Um, they offered us one of three bucks that they were currently campaigning. And Aslan became Gabrielle's Holland, who did very, very well. His son actually won best of breed at convention in 2014. So that was where it started. Uh, the Fuzzy Lops was another story. She got a pair of pet Fuzzy Lops and um, they, that was not a very successful venture for a couple of reasons. Number one reason being that they were kept at her other grandmother's house and the unfortunate situation happened that the dogs got into the rabbits and the rabbits were no longer. So that's when I sort of caved and said, yes, Gabrielle, you can have rabbits at our, at our property. And I had never held a rabbit. I'd never cared about rabbits. I had never really had any interest in them in in my prior years. But they are pretty cute. And the Fuzzy Lops definitely um, hit my heart heartstrings. So that's that's where that all started. So once once we once she lost the rabbits, the first pair. I got on the internet, et cetera, to try to find another pair for her for Christmas. And that was a challenge because at that particular time, they were not available hardly anywhere. We finally were able to find a pair from Sherry Albrecht, which most of you know, the rabbit hole. And she she sold us a, a cute little pair that we started with. So that was the very beginning. 
And then at what point did you start breeding for yourself and showing an open? Well, so uh, that's, that's a very good question because I was kind of in the background as Gabrielle competed and she did very much with the Hollands. However, she was not very into grooming and I have groomed all of my life. I groomed, I groomed dogs when I was younger. I bought my first horse with, by grooming dogs. So grooming was kind of second nature to me. So I did a lot of the grooming of her first fuzzy lobs. As she grew up and got into high school and her interests changed, more and more and more of it fell on my shoulders. We then became a pair once she became, once she aged out and was no longer a youth, we, we became a team, if you will, showing the fuzzy lops. And once, and actually her name has been on that up until, uh, I don't know, it might've even been on there 2019 just just recently has her name kind of come off of it because she's doing horses and getting married and all kinds of fun things that young 23 year olds do so honestly it it developed for me and i became more and more and more involved although it was supporting her in the first five years probably Well, it's interesting to see that's uh, that's actually a really common story to see kind of that generational transition and yep. parents or grandparents pick the hobby up and run with it themselves. So I see that you have a section on your website about grooming fuzzy lops. Um, I think a lot of people kind of assume that they're extremely labor intensive and shy away from them for that reason. Can you kind of give us some information about how much grooming it takes and how you work with the animals as you're getting them ready for showing? Oh, that, that could take hours, but let me see if I can condense that. Um, the first thing to realize and really understand is that a good fuzzy lop does not require a great deal of grooming once they are mature. And that maturity comes at different times depending on the lines. And in fact, and it also depends on their gender. The bucks are harder to keep in coat. Does stay in coat pretty easily. So um, we show a lot of does. They get in coat and they're, we, in the breed, we say that we are striving for a shake and show coat, meaning that, you know, a little touch up and you can put them on the table. Honestly, I have many of those kind. Once they are six or seven or eight months old, they may not get groomed more than once every two weeks. And that may be a quick brush up and a toenail. During show season, often they don't get groomed except the day of the show or maybe the night before. It's not, there are, there are differences in the amount of grooming required depending on the age. Certainly 
the babies until they are three or four, well, three months old are tricky because they do have to get rid of their baby coat, which is soft and mats, and it needs to be plucked or shaved and removed. This is a time that most people get very discouraged with American Fuzzy Lops because they are truly well, difficult. That's an understatement in some cases. And people think they're trying to, they, they believe that they're doing a good job and all of a sudden they've got this matted mess and they don't know what to do with it. So what I try to do on the website is to give them some insight into the fact that the baby molt is absolutely the worst time in the, in the rabbit's life in terms of their coat. And if they can get through it one way or the other, they will be happy with the, uh, the mature coat. Well, that's good advice. I like shake and show. That's oh, shake that's, and show. <laughs> we, in fact, I mean, honestly, if you if you groom them too often, and if you do not have the skills to groom them, you will not have a coat. When I when we had when dancer was going to um, convention before, I had to. I knew she was very uh, exceptional. And I had to walk by her cage day after day after day and say, I don't have to groom you yet. I don't have to groom you yet because I know your coat is just fine. So, I mean, I did not get her out daily. I did not. And it was, it was, um, it's part of a really good coat. And how much of that do you think is genetic and how much of that is care? Um you have to have good genetics. You have to have good genetics. And without that, you will, you will struggle. The care part of it is not so much how much you care or how hard you try. It is, it is skill. And there are things to be learned that can be taught. And there are things that over time you figure out. Um, but, but until you understand that you have to groom that rabbit until there are no mats, groom it to the skin, and then it will be pretty much shaken show if the genetic, if the quality of the coat is correct. But if you're brushing over the outside and making it look cute or pretty or fluffy and there are mats underneath at the skin, you are not doing the job that is necessary to make the process successful. So there is some skill involved. So yeah. I'd say genetics are, genetics are absolutely number one. And skill is number two. That sounds reasonable. You do, of course, have to have the correct texture of coat, the correct balance of guard hair, et cetera, to, yes. to make that coat something that can be groomed um, into a show-ready coat. Yep. 
So you mentioned Dancer a little bit earlier. She is, of course, your famous doe who won Best in Show in Reno. Can you tell us a little bit about her and her background and her story before that show? Oh, Dancer, Dancer, Dancer. She was just a love. Actually, Bryony, you are the one that uh, gave her Best of Breed at Nationals that year. I suppose that was when I first realized how special she was. She was born um, November the year before, approximately November. Her name Dancer came out of a group of fuzzies, which were the um, the reindeer from the Christmas story, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and on Dasher and Dancer and Donner and Blitzer and that whole thing. So I had one of each of those. And Dancer just happened to be the one that um, survived through everything and made it to the top. So that's how her name came along. Are you asking about her her breeding behind that or sure whatever you want to tell us about her and yes i do remember that show clearly um <laughs> it, it wasn't very big no. um but i remember talking to josh humphreys afterwards you know we always talk about when we judge a big show what did sure. you see what did you like and he said what did you pick and i said you're not going to believe this i picked a broken junior doe but she was really good <laughs> she was the last rabbit i touched she was really good you got to believe me here <laughs> um, but she was so yeah if you want to talk a little bit about her background and breeding then that would be I, at least interesting to me i think most of <clears throat> excuse me most all of my breeding is line bred i'm very very tightly bred the whole lap lap line is 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 tightly line bred however there have been numbers of rabbits that have come in from other name breeders such as nate burbage and carol green and tabitha um i've had in the beginning there were several of those as we were amassing our our collection of of Fuzzy Lops, we, partly because Gabrielle was a youth when that all started, everybody was very, very helpful and helped her get a group of rabbits. Then we started looking at what was good and what was winning and what we liked, started breeding those. And it, at that point, the herd narrowed down to a few key rabbits probably the most key of all those rabbits was a buck that nate burbage gave gabrielle after he had been judging hers at one of the local shows and he and we had some new rabbits that we had we imported in from somebody in the country and he and we asked him would you look at these are these good for our herd and he came over and he says um hmm, no really not so good for your herd and he left us walked over to his rabbits brought back a beautiful blue tort buck named that we eventually named treasure and that was probably huge in the background of all of our rabbits 
And Treasure is the grandsire of Dancer. Another rabbit that, that we bred actually was a doe named Rapunzel. Her background was from Tabitha Fenstermake Corbin. And we bought a pair from her. Rapunzel was one of the offspring, and Rapunzel won for us, won for Gabrielle a ton. Rapunzel is also in the background of Dancer. So we just kind of mixed and matched and bred what we like, always paying attention to the genetics and the pedigrees. And, you know, Dancer came out of one of those breedings, and she's been just spectacular. So so that's the genetic background, a little bit of where Dancer came from. And, and thank you so much to Tabitha and to Nate and Carol for their support and the rabbits that they donated or let us have for our program. Um, so Dancer... Dancer emerged about the time that Rapunzel was aging out. She was getting a lot older and wasn't being shown very much. So it was a nice transition to have another spectacular doe. The year that she won in April under you, Bryony, began a whirlwind of just unbelievable, unbelievable shows. She had a sister who was actually by the same sire, who was a a black tort, a solid doe by the name of Jubilee. And between Jubilee and Dancer, through that summer, we took in our area, and not very far out of our area, meaning Colorado, maybe, maybe Reno, maybe... Utah, but not, I mean, we didn't go all the way across the country. Jubilee and Dancer traded best in shows to almost every show we went to. We had, one time I calculated, and we had somewhere between 25 and 30 best in shows between those two. And there was a period of time that Jubilee was winning more than Dancer, but it was a coat thing. Dancer at that moment just didn't have quite as much coat. It was, it was like July. And Jubilee's coat was very strong still, so Jubilee was doing the winning. But once Dancer's coat started coming back, we really could almost not be beat. We were not very well liked in the local circuit because they didn't think that they had much chance when I showed up with Dancer. I can imagine that that seems to be the thing when someone has a rabbit that's hot, people kind of, you know, see them coming and think, oh, there go my chances down the drain. So with that buildup, um, how did you feel when you entered her in Reno? And what was the buildup to that show like with a rabbit that had had such a successful show season? Well, it was interesting because with a with a rabbit with a with a wool rabbit you never know when they're not going to have coat right and i had people tell me people say you should not show her because don't you want her to be fresh for convention 
And I thought, well, yeah, but she may not have coat. I don't know that she'll have coat, right? So, so I did not heed their advice. And I said, as long as she's out there winning and doing well, I'm going to show her. I may never ever have another rabbit as spectacular as she is. And why not live it while I've got it? So, so she, her coat kept, she maintained condition through all the traveling and the showing her coat maintained. Again, it being pretty much a shake and show, I didn't have to spend a great deal of time, which can um, pull coat or break coat. I didn't have to spend a great deal of time grooming her. And each time I got her out, I, her coat was still good. It was, it was great. Um, I have pictures of her maybe two weeks before convention. And I looked at her and I said, man, you look great. I think you can do something. By the time we got to convention, her coat had grown even more. It had, it had, it had gained that flow, the skirt, the, 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 the icing on the cake, if you will. It had just bloomed that last two weeks before convention. So I was very excited, of course. It was also very humbling because many of the judges that had met her between the time you recognized her and the time we went to convention looked me up at convention and said, how's Dancer doing? How's she look? How's she look? Is she doing okay? How's her coat? You know, they were they were excited for her as well, which that was that also was very humbling. Very exciting. It does kind of make us proud to see a rabbit that we've chosen go on and do well. Of course. Um, so then she won best of breed, and what was that like? It was scary. I mean, I knew she was really, really, really good, but anything can happen. It is, you know, there is luck involved. Absolutely, there's luck involved. There was no way to say, there's no way to not be biting your fingernails while you're watching because you don't know you're going to win the first class. You don't know you're going to win the broken class. You don't know you're going to win the variety. That You don't know any of those things. So each step was like, oh, my gosh, we made it one more step. Oh, my gosh, one more step. And then Ted and Scott, Ted Deloyola and Scott Rodriguez were the two judges that year for breed. And when they came together to choose best of breed they spent a lot of time with both the tort joe jubilee and dancer they went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and i didn't know i my opinion was that dancer had better coat and better head but jubilee was a little deeper and there's certainly different things about the two rabbits so I didn't, who knew who was going to take that? But once they announced best of breed, I did what we always do. 
at all of our local shows. And I went up to the judge and I thanked him. I said, gee, I want a picture. And he looked at me and he says, no. He says, you can't do that. Because what if it, we come to best in show? You can't have, you can't put that picture out there so that there's any um, possible idea of contamination of the judging when it comes to best in show. I had no idea he was going to be one of the best in show judges. And it didn't matter. I mean, so I didn't get a picture. That was okay. When I look back at it, though, I think he knew. I think he knew that there was a really strong chance that Dancer might actually do it. So then what was it like on that Tuesday when Best in Show was chosen, or that Monday, um, and you were taking her up on the stage for group judging? Oh, <laughs> um, well, it was interesting, of course. I I knew that a lot of people were out there grooming and and whatever their rabbits. I didn't touch her. Once I did my basic grooming, I did nothing more. And I carried her to the back where, where all of us meet. And I was sitting back there. And I knew it was going to be like an hour before we actually got on stage. And I actually took her with me and went back and sat by myself in a, in a private location and just kind of breathe. I just kind of meditated because it was like so, such an awesome experience. So um, then when I heard, let's see, we were all backstage waiting to go on. And there was a rumor that Alan Messick was going to judge the best in show. And my heart just did a flip-flop because I knew he liked Fuzzy Lops. And I just, I just, my heart just did a flip-flop. But I don't think I breathed after that. I don't think I breathed. <laughs> but going on stage and walking across there, it was just, you know, it was just a blur. I think... I don't know. It was it was an awesome experience. So then she did win her group. Yep. And she was one of the four rabbits up for best in show. So right. tell us about that. I don't think I was breathing. I was sitting back there, sitting back there, just watching, sort of dazed, knowing that she was, that, that it was possible. And... Um, honestly, in such a days that I, that I don't remember much of it, what I do remember is that once it was announced that she had won it, I just started bawling. I just started crying and I was sitting there in my chair and my friend, Rob, dear friend, Robin Vogel came up to me in a couple of minutes and she said, Linda, you have to go up on stage. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was just dazed. It was awesome. It was awesome. And unlike several of our best in show winners, 
you hadn't been in rabbits for decades. How long had you been breeding when you won Best in Show at convention? Honestly, five years. Five years. There was there was a little bit of time prior to that that we were that Gabrielle and I were doing Hollands and Fuzzies. But personally, me taking over the decision making and so forth, maybe five years. It was it was humbling because I knew there were people there that had had twenty or thirty years in rabbits that had hoped to do that, and it was it was I could I didn't believe it. It was just it was awesome. It certainly was. It was a fun win to watch, and again, it was one that made me smile too because I recognized that doe, and it had been fun to watch her show career from that national show all the way to best in show at the ARBA convention. But then after convention, things changed a little bit rapidly, didn't they? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) So um, tell us a little bit about those next few months. Well, are you talking before the pandemic start began or after the pandemic started? Well, um, tell us about after convention and then leading into the twin pandemics that we okay. dealt with. Right. And that Colorado had an especially tough time with. Right. Um, the big thing, I had made the decision not to breed dancer until after convention because we were having so much fun showing, which meant that she was a year old before she was ever bred. And the first litter that she conceived, she delivered one big DOA and I had to extract it from her. It was not fun. And I was so panicked that I might lose her and I mean the baby was already gone. So that was that was scary. That was really scary, but she she got through it and um healed fine. I bred her back and so then we began doing some breedings and and have had a lot of fun with litters after that. So so that happened in the next 3 or 4 months and that was it was was pretty scary that I might lose that best in show doe when she was trying to deliver a dead baby. But after that, we did go to convention to this Arizona State Convention in March or no, February. It was in February. She did not go. She's not, you know, she never had she was never going to hit the show table again because once you win something like that, you can't can't do that and it was and jubilee was still showing and she did well but it wasn't the same it was kind of it was kind of a letdown to go to the show and not have the big guns there to really play with the minute we got back from the arizona state convention we got word that covid had hit the united states and uh so that had its own problems. It didn't ever, has not yet ever touched our family in, in, a, in a big way. However, um, when RHDV2 became an issue, it was huge for 
all of the rabbit people in Colorado. Huge. And when did that start? When was the first case diagnosed? In Col- I don't I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. Somewhere between March and April, maybe May, maybe early May. Okay. We were already, you know, we were already quarantined at home basically from COVID. And so when the RHDV2 started, it just sort of added insult to injury and we couldn't go anywhere anyway. So it, we kind of um, had to just stay at home. What happened here, I think what happened nationwide was people panicked, absolutely panicked. And the big reason they panicked was because they believed that if, if a rabbit in their barn contracted RHDV2, they would lose their entire herd. Number one, they would all just die because it was such a horrible virus. And number two, if they didn't all die, then the government was going to come in and take them all, you know, slaughter them all because they wanted to take care to protect the rest of the country from the RHDV2. So the, the panic was real and it hit our hearts and we didn't sleep very well at night because the panic of not knowing where it was, what it was doing, and when it might be in our backyard was pretty scary. Yeah, I can imagine. I know in Kansas, you know, it seemed to be moving east at a pretty steady clip, and we were kind of doing the same thing, just holding our breath and waiting to see if it was going to hit. But for whatever reason, it did seem to stay in Colorado, but it was there for quite a while, and you guys were mostly under quarantine for quite some time with that. Honestly, for well over a year, well over a year, um, it would, you know, it would bounce around a little bit and maybe a corner of the state or here or there, people were able to move out. But even if they could go out to a show, a show wasn't even being held because you couldn't do it because of COVID. So how did the breeders in Colorado, you know, stay connected to the hobby and stay optimistic and positive through all of this? Early on, I began researching the virus. One of the things that I, that came, that I began to understand was that it does not affect all the rabbits. Even if you have it in your herd, there are ways to protect your herd and may and and maintain some of the rabbits in your herd the vaccinations that became available were critical to colorado as well as the others that had it available to them certainly i spent thousands of dollars on vaccinations as soon as they were available it was about june maybe July, 
when we when Laplop hosted its first RHDV2 clinic. And that was scary too, because here I was at my facility inviting other people in to bring their rabbits to vaccinate. At that point, we were so paranoid about the virus that that was a scary thing. What happened was the rabbitry is in one corner of the property and the vaccinations happened in my garage. We had Vertcon, we had rescue a little bit later, we did very high biosecurity. When we did the vaccination clinics, found an excellent vet in uh, Parker, Colorado. Her name is Dr. Michelle Leak. Absolutely amazing rabbit vet who was had early on gone through the process to import the vaccine because she saw it she may have seen it as a business endeavor a business move but she loves rabbits and she knew that that was the only thing that was really going to save many rabbits within our state so we teamed up and about every month we had vaccine clinics here at in Loveland at Laplop. Most times we had between 100 and 200 rabbits here. The cost with, for including Michelle's time and farm call charges was 17 or 18 dollars per rabbit. Most of us did 20 to 50 rabbits at a time. It was big bucks, but we weren't spending that money showing. That was bunny money that we weren't spending showing. So it was okay. We were saving our herds. And I'll tell you what, after that first clinic and I vaccinated nearly 100 rabbits, I slept that night. That was the first night in a, quite a while that I slept because I wasn't so worried that it was going to come and take out my my hobby, my life, because the rabbits had become very much my life. That peace of mind is worth a lot. Um, oh, yes. I'm sure that after your big win, um, was there ever a time when you thought, I've achieved the ultimate in this hobby, maybe this is just time to to set it aside? You know, I don't think so. It may be coming now, but it didn't come then. And the reason that it didn't come then is because there were people that were shaking their heads and say, well, that was just luck. And it was, it was, for me, I'm competitive enough that I wanted to be able to go out there and compete again and still do well and still... And, and even more than that, I love my breed. We The American Fuzzy Lop is just a special breed, very, very dear to my heart. And I feel like there's mentoring others in this breed is key to who I am. Also, Addison Vogel is a young, a youth who had 
purchased from us early and was doing very well. It was critical to me to keep at the forefront, to keep mentoring her through the pandemics and keep her involved. And one of the things that kept us going, honestly, were the online shows. They were pretty amazing. So did you enter many of the online shows? Like all of them. <laughs> it gave me something to do. You know, what it did, it, made, it gave us a purpose to spend time with the rabbits. It gave us a time to evaluate the rabbits, to keep them groomed, take photographs of them. We learned so much from looking at pictures, even though it's not hands-on, but looking at pictures and seeing how visually to evaluate a, a fuzzy lob. Addison and her mother, who live about an hour and a half from here, would come up just about every two weeks. She, they'd bring some of their rabbits up here. I'd take some of my rabbits down there. We'd, we'd go back and forth. And we would play. We would do play shows, pretend shows. Uh, we'd put out a bunch of junior does or a bunch of senior bucks. And all of us would go through and we'd all place them and we'd say, this is why. And, and gee, I don't think you need to keep this one. This one's kind of ugly if you want my opinion. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was critical for us to get together, even on, it wasn't like a show, but it was fun to get together. And we trusted each other's biosecurity. We knew we were all vaccinated. We were careful in all regards to the rabbits and we got together. And that even, that even, developed a little further and we invited a few more people into that little circle to get together and uh, evaluate rabbits, including some judges. It was fun. So it, that was what kept us going. Honestly, that is what kept us going. You know, we heard when the online shows began, there were some people that said, oh, this is silly. But we've heard over and over again that story that it kept people going. It kept them interested yep. in their animals. Um, and I think it's it's so cool how the hobby just pivoted and people donated so much time just to really keeping others invested in that hobby. I think that's so special. So you touched a little bit on your mentorship with Addison. I know you have an entire section on your webpage devoted to mentoring youth. That seems to be something that's very important to you. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what good mentorship is to you? Um, um, let me see. Where do I go with that? Certainly, the future of our hobby, the future of the American Fuzzy Lop hobby has to start with youth. And there's a lot to learn, especially about the grooming. But when 
I can help when Laplop is able to donate time and or rabbits to youth to get them involved and interested. It's part of what we what we stand for. The first time that happened, Gabrielle was still involved. She actually had won um, won the AFL Raffo at convention one year. The following spring, we donated, she donated from produce from that trio, a trio which was won by a youth, Elena Franchi in Pennsylvania. Elena continues to show fuzzy lops she every so often she calls me it was just a year ago maybe she called with a needing some medical advice on some babies that she was losing and we remain friends even now as she's she is also like gabrielle um in college and doing a few other things but maintains her herd of fuzzies to some extent that's not the only one we've done a few others through that period but most recently we i have sent laplop has sent rabbits to a young man in oregon he took it out i posted i posted online on facebook i said this is one i should have kept because her name she she has best in show written all over her first time out he won a best in show in use with that dough um early on we sold a few to some youth in california nate come up to me afterwards and he said you sold that to her why didn't you keep her well you know i didn't because i had her sister that particular doe's sister that that particular doe went on to win best of breed youth nationals once gabrielle was out of there or something like that close i can't remember she was at nationals or convention with that doe that that we sold her and she did very well many many of the rabbits that we have put into the hands of uh, um willing and excited youth have gone on to win well when big honors that must be exciting um it, it's just important it's important i love it yeah so shows have started back up in colorado again in the past few months and i know that you've been right in the thick of that so tell us a little bit about what it was like getting restarted in that area so i alluded a little bit to the group of us that got together during the RHDV2. At that point, we were an organization called EARS. Scott Rodriguez from Wyoming graciously lent his expertise to some of our um, judges' comment days, is what we called them. But we, we would sit around at lunch, we would talk we would spend the lunchtime educating about RHDV2, and we'd visit as rabbit families do. But he said, you, this group needs to consider seeking 
Arba Charter, become an Arba, Arba Chartered Club. And we kind of all looked at each other like, oh, Arba doesn't want to really know what we're doing. So I'm not sure that's a great idea. But he persisted. And as we, as things started loosening up with RHDV2, we decided that, that was probably a really good idea to get chartered with ARBA. ARBA was most happy to give us a charter, but told us that we could not be ears because there was another group that was, that we had to change our name. So it became Colorado Area Rabbit Shows, which is CARS, C-A-R-S. We put on two shows in one in September, one in December of 21. We have put on one show so far this year. We have three more scheduled. During this period of time, the Colorado State Club, Rocky Mountain High Shows, has lost about 75% of their chartered clubs, meaning that people have quit. Clubs have quit. People said, you know, I'm not going to do it. I, I can't feed these rabbits if I don't have shows to go to. And so right now, CARS is at the forefront of what is happening in Colorado for rabbit shows. We have an amazing group of people putting these shows on. We have we have learned to organize. We have been able to bring in excellent judges. We had Mike Magellis, Matt Bishop, um, Shane Ringdahl. In addition to local judges, we've had Alan Ormond. Scott is here. Scott does a lot of our backup judging for us because he's he's local. And so we are, we're excited about moving forward, but we also know that in order to keep this hobby alive in Colorado, we're going to have to put on four shows a year. We have dates for this year and next year for four shows each year. That's a lot for a group of about eight of us to do. Well, hopefully this enthusiasm will spur some others to join in too. They're helping and, and they are, they're excited. They're excited. We have to be very careful. We have to be very careful because the money, we don't know what people are going to show, who, who will come and who will bring, who are, we don't even know who's still in the hobby. So there was no way to kind of budget. It's happening though, and we're doing fine. Yeah, I see. Like I said, I've seen lots of pictures on there and everyone just looks so thrilled to be back showing and to some sort of normal. Right. So what sort of advice would you have for breeders that are kind of going through a difficult situation like this or, or anything else, just any kind of setback that, you know, prevents them from enjoying the hobby the way they want to? Ooh, that's a deep subject. Um. I think it's important to
Hmm. I don't know quite how to answer that. That's that's a little. That's a very large question. I guess when it came to vaccinating rabbits, putting the money out to vaccinate rabbits, people had to say, okay, who is the most important in my herd? They had to really cut cut their numbers to the ones they could afford to vaccinate. That's probably true in any kind of a rough patch that you go through. If you're not, you know, if you're if you're moving cross country, if your um, financial status or your has changed or anything, really, really choose a few rabbits that will keep you going, because if you're a breeder and you have created a line, you don't want to lose that line. The other thing that I would say about that is. If you're a breeder and you're proud of your line and your line works, don't be stingy with it. Get it out there so that if if the worst happens and RHDB2 takes out the herd in your backyard, you can reach out to some of those friends that you have sold good rabbits to and get part and get your lineage back. That I think might be a good piece of advice. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and I think, I think everyone kind of learned how fleeting some of these things can be in the past couple of years. Fleeting in terms of, you know, that, that, uh, we think it's always going to be there, but right. Right. Yeah. So I have one last question for you, and it's one that we ask all of our guests. Describe to us your perfect rabbit show. <laughs> I think I just went to my perfect rabbit show because we organized it. It was in uh, Longmont last weekend. It was well run from the beginning to the end. I'm sort of tooting the horn of all of the CARS members because the organization was impeccable. The catalog was beautiful. The superintendent kept the show running smoothly. The judges came in on time. Um, their flights all made it in, even though there was a little bit of a hiccup with a couple of them. They they were all there. That was that was all good. But the exciting thing for me personally was having Dancer's Daughter tap dance sweep the tables. She took three best in shows at our triple show this weekend. And that was just, I mean, that how, how more perfect can that be? I would tend to agree with that. Well, thank you, Linda, for joining us and telling us a story of optimism and perseverance. I hope it's something that people will find some encouragement in, you know, as they face some of these quarantines or some of these tougher times when they're not able to show and breed like they want to. Right. Well, it's certainly been a pleasure. It's definitely an honor to be asked. I hope that um, my story will be inspiring to some and certainly um, the mentorship is a, a big part of who Lap Lop Rabbitry is. And that's a big part of success in this hobby as well, all around. Sure, of course.
Brandy, that was a really great interview with Linda, the winner from the 2019 ARB convention with her Fuzzy Lop. Fuzzy Lops were the breed of my youth, and uh, I always love seeing them at conventions. I do sometimes have dreams of owning them again, but then I remember how dirty their cage wire can get, and, the, and then I stop thinking about it anymore and just enjoy them from other breeders as I judge. All right, we're going to spend the last part of this episode talking about education, as we love to do, both you and I are big on education. And I dove into an article written or published in 2019 from the World Rabbit Science, volume 27. And it comes from Europe. And the title is, Does Wild Rabbit Population Size Affect Connectivity? This was by authors Machado and Santos. And those two researchers are from Portugal. So the abstract of this research article goes something like this. Conservationists and game managers have shared an interest in assuring the existence of resilient and sustainable populations of wild rabbits in the Iberian Peninsula, otherwise known as Portugal and Spain. Local abundance of wild rabbits can vary significantly, even in short periods, while the colonization of adjacent territories is uncommon, probably due to the territorial behavior of wild rabbit species. Aware that the foundation of group rabbits requires interaction amongst individuals, these researchers hypothesize that rabbit abundance plays a significant part in population connectivity. The researchers' goal was to find out whether the overall population size of wild rabbits affect the connectivity between separate groups of wild rabbits. So in some, wild rabbits live in small groups or colonies, and they sometimes interact with each other, but they mainly kind of don't coexist because of their territorial behavior. So the researchers wanted to find out if the population of wild rabbits was larger, would there actually be more interaction between sort of opposing groups of wild rabbits in Spain? So the researchers looked at wild rabbits in the Iberian Peninsula, and these rabbits actually serve kind of an important purpose in the ecosystem there. They have a relevant role in the region's food webs as prey animals for more than 30 predators, including the Spanish imperial eagle and Iberian lynx. Over recent decades, rabbit populations have declined significantly in the Iberian Peninsula due to the combined effect of human-induced habitat changes and two viral diseases, myxomatosis and, we hate to say the bad word, but rabbit hemorrhagic disease. Recovery strategies based on rabbit management, habitat management, predator control, vaccination, and restocking have been put into practice for hunting and conservation purposes. Thousands of rabbits have been released in the Iberian Peninsula in an attempt to reverse the population decline of those wild rabbits. Wild rabbits display very complex and social behavioral kind of traits that significantly influence their regular routine on the daily. They are territorial species that lives in groups, as I said earlier, and they also defend against territories of other wild rabbits that are not from within their group. So taking that into consideration, wild rabbit social behavior, space use, and dispersal strategies, the researchers guessed that population size of these wild rabbits in the Iberian Peninsula would be directly influenced by the connectivity between the groups. So in their research, their methodology included uh, researchers, researchers uh, conducting the, the research in the hunting estate in a mountainous region in southern Portugal. The presence of orchards and crops associated with a number of streams and reservoirs was suitable for wild rabbits to live and thrive. However, there were some steep slopes and thin soils over rock, which made it difficult for rabbits to dig warrens, and they got to a rather high density of populations within the groups. And we want to remind our listeners, 
we raise rabbits, of course, in cages and hutches, but in the wild rabbits dig what are called warrens or holes in the ground and they, they thrive in there and they, they live in groups. So the species abundance was very low, probably due to this limiting factor of kind of the environment around them, meaning the ground that was really hard to dig into and create these warrens, although these populations were high in density. So in order to boost these rabbit populations, habitat improvement measurements by the Spanish government and Portuguese government have been implemented in hunting estates, such as artificial warrens and watering points, so they can find water, because again, this is a very dry region. So after the research, there were some conclusions. After tracking wild rabbits in the game estate in southern Portugal, the researchers' work led to two main conclusions in their 2019 paper in the World Rabbit Science Journal. First, connectivity grows to a certain extent with the abundance of rabbits. And number two, in their conclusions, there is going to be a group spatial segregation regardless of the population size due to the natural behavior of rabbits, meaning that territorial behavior where they kind of would rather stick with their own group and an opposing group is going to be defended against. The results confirm that connectivity grows with rabbit abundance, but only to a certain degree and that spatial segregation within the groups regardless of the rabbit population size. In the end, the researchers argue that in restocking operations, they should be located within a certain range from the existing ones to promote intergroup connectivity, but not too close, as the tendency for group segregation is likely to persist due to the species' territorial behavior. Therefore, the general management recommendation by by these researchers to the government is that a sustainable wild rabbit population increment must focus on both abundance and spatial distribution. On the one hand, groups of wild rabbits should be located close enough to each other to allow interaction between individual individuals, but from different groups. Managers should not expect to achieve a continuous distribution of wild rabbits, as a spatial segregation of the group is likely to stand regardless of the population size. Practice or practical recommendations include uh, those kind of artificial warrens or holes in the ground, uh, using restocking with foreign rabbits, and those should be done kind of not close, but not too far away from existing groups. Carrying out habitat improvement, such as pastures, believe it or not, and watering points in places where new groups would be valuable for the entire group and network also would prove important. The researchers also suggest to try to avoid building and promoting isolated groups. So that would you know, mean no connectivity between groups. And they also considered whether it would be most advantageous for the global you know, connectivity, is this something that uh, we all could look at, basically, if this research wanted to be done elsewhere in the world? And they said, yes, the researchers state that although the study was performed in an estate in the mountainous part of southern Portugal, that the procedure for their methodology and uh, overall conclusions behind it might be helpful to game managers and conservationists anywhere. So that's kind of an interesting article. Of course, we don't deal with wild rabbits in the show rabbit industry, but uh, it is interesting to note the researchers' uh, remarks about the territorial behaviors of rabbits, and we do witness that in our own barn. It's why we all why we keep rabbits. Yeah, they're together in one barn, but they're still separated by cages because rabbits are a territorial animal, and they don't really want to live with a bunch of other <laughs> other rabbits. They're not going to thrive. They're not going to do very well. And the jokes can be made that maybe the population would would explode, but not according to these researchers. So, what do you think about that? Um, you know that kind of goes well with some of the advice we give. I know sometimes pet owners, um, you know, you see posts every now and then, not not typically in breeder groups, but sometimes in location-specific groups asking for help in bonding rabbits because they don't want to bond. And I'm like, well, haven't you ever been 
shoved together with a roommate you didn't like. I mean, it, you know, and I tell people too, you know, if they have more than one rabbit, they like neighbors, but they don't necessarily like roommates. Exactly. This reminds me of uh, <laughs> the LA County Fair uh, a few years ago. I, I worked at their small animal department as their coordinator for the last few years before they totally got rid of competitive livestock, including small animals. And the last year that I worked there, trust me, it was the last year I worked there. They said, okay, we're not going to allow you to have a rabbit show anymore, but would you still monitor a rabbit kind of event? And we're going to fill all of these um, hog pens. We're going to take the panels out and they're going to be these long runs. And we're just going to run a bunch of rabbits together. And I'm like, you know, that's not a good idea. They're, it's it's going to be a bloodbath. And it's and you think that the fair growers are going to enjoy this. They may start making bets on the rabbits, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be pretty. Rabbits don't want to live together. No, there'll be a lot of fighting and a lot of mommy. What are those rabbits doing? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. All right, Bryony. Well, we're going to conclude this episode 33 and I've got a good quote that uh, it gives uh, kind of a nod to a lot of the things that Linda said in her, her journey in the rabbit industry and her journey to success as a, as a convention best in show winner. The delicate balance of mentoring someone is not creating them in your own image, but giving them the opportunity to create themselves. And that's by Steven Spielberg. I think that's perfect. All right, Bryony, take us away. And as we say every time, until the next episode, talk rabbits and talk cavies. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, It does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.